Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 17, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, chapters 9 and 10. We experienced grim defeat, as well as the Marauder's Map, and friend George at the best, as it were. So back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Wesley Chance. Welcome back, y'all. Hey. Welcome back. It's great to hear from you. And um, so we uh, we had quite a quite a cadre of firsts in this most recent couple chapters, didn't we? We saw Harry for the first time lose in Quidditch, and um, again, I suppose, find himself on the receiving end of being the hero, not being the hero. Cedric Diggory is be the hero now, and I guess he has something now to empathize with Ron about. It's something I wrote in my book. <laughs> just being overshadowed in the moment. And then also we get um, sort of what seems like the ultimate tool in the Marauder's map. And so um, leading up to this ultimate revelation for Harry about his relationship with Sirius Black and the true nature of um, his connection, with him, I suppose. And so, well, what do you guys want to start with tonight? Yeah. That that whole backstory is again. It it sort of goes back to one of the first pages of the first book where we hear Sirius Black mentioned, and uh, and Hagrid even alludes to that here. He says, you know, really really loudly in the bar how he should have um, torn that murderous coward apart limb from limb, um, but instead he just borrowed his flying motorcycle. Uh, so I found that really interesting. That it it sort of reaches way back to the beginning of the book uh it's filling in some of the backstory and uh and then how harry goes in and has a look at his um his album that hagrid gave him of all the pictures of his father and he finds the picture of sirius black at their wedding right and so there's an and so in learning this information about Sirius Black, now we understand why James Potter would have asked Harry in the first place uh, not to go after Sirius Black. And um, once he realized, once he came to know that there was a blood feud with Sirius, that not only was he directly involved in the murder, or well, uh, purposefully, but, in, or, but indirectly involved in the murder of James and Lily Potter. He didn't pull the trigger, as it were, but... In Harry's current view of him, which will be just as wrong as his current view of Snape, he will, um, he will, uh, he, he thinks, well, he, he will hate this man precisely for the fact that he was the friend who betrayed his friends, who did the unthinkable. Um, I don't know if that, it seems like an archetype. Is there anything worse than that? The best friend who is inseparable from the other who then sells out the other. And I'm sorry if my microphone's making a bunch of noise. No, no, it's fine. It's, it does seem like it's, it's sort of uh, curious how this was prepared for in a way, right? From the very start, um, maybe that's something like what you're describing in an archetype like that's sort of built into the story somehow um and and yet the way that we we actually overhear it is 
um, it's sort of humorous, right? Like the way that Hagrid, Fudge, um, McGonagall, and is it Flitwick? Oh, the four of them sort of come into the bar and are just apparently just like catching up with the uh, bartender there. And that's how Harry finally overhears this critical information um, from behind the Christmas tree. I just thought it was a really funny, funny scene. Um. Yeah, talk about a gift of information. Uh, I think we had talked last time about how people seem to want um, to keep him in the dark about things. Um, and he gets this unusual Christmas present here of like information about the past. And it's not, it's not pleasant information. It's not information that um, is probably, e it's probably not easy to accept some of it as true or as, um, you know, as like without being somewhat outraged. Um, but it is kind of cool how it does happen at Christmas. I agree. I noted that in, in the book, how like, what a nice touch. It didn't have to be that. What a nice touch. Well, it's interesting too, because it's sort of like his Christmas gift is sort of like the ultimate Christian gift, which is a gift of betrayal, right? Just sort of like Jesus, though not on Christmas, close to the East, is betrayed by his own apostle, um, Judas Iscariot. And so it's like the story within the story is that this is a story not only about walking the path of the hero, but also, but also about the other great story in human existence, which is a best friend betraying his best friend and going the path of evil. Though that will ultimately not be what the book concludes. Um, yeah. But that is, we are led to a dark, we are led to some dark beliefs at this moment, right? The Grimm showing up several times now, prefiguring major accidents or potentially major accidents for Harry, as well as, um, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train because of this terrible feedback I'm getting. Can you guys hear this? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Can you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, if I lose my train, it's because I, I can't get over that. And I'm sorry, I, I've got to be a little more pro about this and get through the technological issues. So I'll try and set my intention to that. But um, so what was I saying about the Grimm? I'm sorry, um, that it prefigures a major accident for Harry. And and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know where I was. <laughs> well, I guess it seemed like you were kind of connecting that with the way that um, Sirius is portrayed as this uh, Judas figure oh, but how that's gonna how that's gonna turn out to not be the case and I guess you know he he's gonna turn out to be this Grim who keeps showing up um, so a figure that seems to be of death turns out to be the this uh, this father figure, ultimately, right? This um, right this protector. We have a portrayal, a portrayal of, or we have a darkness, or a, a night sea journey, a Nikia, a descent to the underworld. Now, the tone is dark. The Dementors are showing up. The Grim defeat, an actual defeat. Seeing the Grim, uh, learning this terrible revelation about 
um, Sirius Black. And yet there is some hope and some good times in here, right? He does get the Marauders back, Harry does. And um, he does get to go to Hogsmeade and get to go to Honeydukes. And imagine uh, Dudley's piggly little self looking at those desserts. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting that the darkness does prefigure the dawn in this, in this book. Because it does end on a very high note. And in fact, the idea of a Patronus and having to harness a very happy thought in order to uh, balance out the darkness of a traumatically dark one seems to also be that symbol in a bottle that, um, that the way to fight the darkness is through the light through, and that the path through the darkness leads to the light or the path through the very difficult time leads to the positive hope again, like Dante's Inferno ending with the stars. And that, so mm -hmm. I say that this book broadly seems to be taking the path of Dante, the way down is the way up in an Inferno-esque way. We, we seem to be in the Inferno now, not the Purgatory or Paradiso. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think, um, I mean, so many things go wrong for them in that chapter, The Grim Defeat, right? Like, and so many things go wrong for them in a way that feels, like, unfair. It doesn't feel mm. like, um, if, particularly in um, both the Quidditch match and in um, uh, the Defense Against the Dark Arts class. Um, there wow. just seemed to be like casualties everywhere that like they didn't, there are definitely times where Harry and Ron and Hermione even deserve um, like modification or, you know, five points from Gryffindor or whatever, but um, it feels like they're, getting sucked down into a circumstance of circumstances of, of like injustice. Um, and, and of course we haven't even gotten to the point where Buckbeak is, is a uh, sentence to death, but like, like the fat lady, like what did she ever do to anybody? You know, Hermione, what did she ever do except have the right answer? Like Harry, what did he ever do except, you know, get on his broomstick and try to win a game. And it's, I mean, like, they're facing these, um, I don't know, villain might be the wrong word, but they're facing these, like, these figures, be it Snape in the classroom or, um, you know, the Dementors um, or fear that, um, that, like, that are beyond their dessert, you know? It seems like, I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, it certainly makes them seem like, in a place of darkness where they've fallen down into the garbage chute and they don't know how to get out. And then all of a sudden it's compacting on them. Yeah. This feels like belly of the whale to me, but. Well, Ron got that 50 point deduction. For throwing, yeah. For throwing, what, what was it, a crocodile's heart at Malfoy's face? I mean, the symbolic, importance of that I thought was excellent that he won the game outside the game even though he had 50 points taken from him so they're fighting some sort <laughs> of injustice it seems and yeah like the Dementor showing up and messing up Harry there that's there's an injustice there he's only he has to mess with that image if everybody else had that same thing they'd all fall off their brooms too and the game would not have been lost but these sorts of injustices seem to be sort of the ones that you can't fight, the ones that just happen. 
Like yeah. some people have endured worse moments than other people and so they have to deal with that pain. And yes, it does have a more negative effect on them than it does on others. But ultimately that's something they're going to have to fight themselves by means of producing a Patronus or a counter happy memory in order to sort of balance out their map of the world so that they can continue to be productive or uh, live meaningful lives within it and not go the path of Cain and think everything is evil and want to destroy, right? Um, right. Which is what we think Sirius did. Though actually it's a far more malevolent and fraudulent move. Um, a truly malicious act by Peter Pettigrew. Um, that... That fat boy who was never any good at dueling, says McGonagall. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he he's an interesting um, character here because we we hear like little hints about him, uh, and it's still not nearly enough to piece it all together. I think, but we we do hear that he sort of tagged along after these popular and uh, talented um, students that he. Uh, confronted Sirius there at the end, right, and was uh, posthumously awarded the the Order of Merlin first class for his valor. Uh, but all that's left of him is a single finger, which is um, like delivered to his his mom or whatever, right? And so I think don't they say that he looked kind of like uh, maybe I'm reading ahead again with, with the the photographs that he looked kind of like. Um, uh, Neville. I think the connection made. Yeah, so that's that's kind of cool. Like that that sort of sums it up, right? Like that's all that needs to be said, um, since we know. And and yet at the same time, uh, the the parallel between. Um, the two chapters I thought was was really interesting in that the uh, the first one has somehow or the the one where the fat lady has to run away right we have somebody sneaking into the castle somehow no one can figure out how uh, and then we get the Marauders map just a little bit later that we're, we're told you know there's these passages that have been um, discovered and then there's these other passages that haven't and it's like everyone sort of knows like that must be how Sirius Black got in right like but no one wants to say it um, and I feel like it's kind of the same way with Peter Pettigrew and the mystery of uh, of how Sirius Black like escaped from Azkaban like the, the evidence is is starting to pile up that something is weird here you know um, but no, no one can quite like look at it head on just yet. Um, we, we haven't got quite enough to piece it all together. And so is the issue you're seeing that, that what we're not looking at is the fact that he is one of us and he knows our ways and thus he knows the secret inner workings of the society and how to navigate it. So the very, the very crimes that were committed against him by his friend Pettigrew that he was convicted of. He's now using those techniques in order to uh, progressively infiltrate society to come back into it in a, um, well, in a, in a way that would be considered, uh, you know, malicious or hyper-rational in an evil way. 
Um, what is it? What is it that you think that's? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it it seems like to this point, there's the information is all there, but no one has been able to sort of piece it all all together yet. Um, like Ron knows that Scabbers is missing a a claw or whatever, right? Like that that tidbit of information is there, and that's of some concern to Ron. Um, now, Hagrid knows that Sirius uh, seemed like the kind of person who would never give up his friends. And that's sort of like just that much more uh, shocking to him because he thinks that he did, right? But like, if you, and, and then we have the, the little story about Pettigrew's finger being the only thing left, right? So it's like the only, yeah, the only person here who, who like knows what actually happened, aside from Sirius, um, is the narrator is the is the reader with hindsight to be able to see each mm -hmm. come up um, and yeah and serious right like he we see that he is he's infiltrated the castle and then the, a couple chapters later we see that there's this map that lets you you know find your way through secret passages that no one knows about except the Weasleys maybe right um, so there's there's enough there's enough hints now and and I don't know, like, if it's so much not being, not like being willing to look at the truth yet, or just that no one has, um, no one has actually assembled all of those tidbits yet. Even uh, though instinct has been leading that way the whole time through the, the avenue of the theriomorphic form of Hermione Crookshanks, right? Even his name, Crook, like... He, he can find the crook. He can, he can root out the rat. He's known all along. He's been pointing at Peter Pettigrew, but we haven't been able to see what he's saying, um, as it were. That's sort of, that's interesting that we, that, that sort of indicates what the full meaning of a film noir is, is that we're the ones in the dark the whole time. Hmm. And so this is a story about, we're in the dark until the great revelation that helps us understand the information that's been provided to us all along. The mystery. And I would just add into that. I was just going to say, like, I think a really big part of putting together the exits and entrances pieces is, is understanding the relationships that we would have no way of knowing about um, Professor Lupin and all of the other um, boys I think like knowing what we end up finding out like so much of of their um like school age trickery came about as a consequence of keeping their friend company right um and uh there are also clues that again like if you in hindsight it makes sense like in these chapters we got the bogart and then Lupin is sick, and then he assigns an essay on werewolves um, yeah. and recognizing them, you know, like all of these cards are on the table. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't really get the vibe that any of them right now are red herrings, but there's something about, um, I don't know, I guess maybe it's, the degree to which they're emphasized or the order in which they're delivered or like the tone with which they're delivered that makes them like it makes the reader not see the the 
um, the netting that connects them all? I'm not sure. And when, what, do you think that's a weakness or do you think it's a strength? No, no. I, I mean, I think it's a real strength of the book that the, the main thing that seems to be brought forward really, really slowly throughout the series is information about what Harry's parents were like as kids or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Like that seems to be the thing, like to know his relationship to Sirius Black uh, a little bit. And then we get a little later in the book, a little more about their relationship with Lupin and then the truth about Peter. But it's only like in the last couple books that we finally get the whole story of what was going on between them and Snape, right? And like finally fill mm -hmm. in some of his motivations. And, and so, yeah, I think it's a real, a really interesting like layering of the story that takes place where you are focused throughout the series on Harry, but the most important thing to understand what's happening here is to understand those people who were taken away from Harry, right? Like what they were actually like as people. Uh, I find that really so interesting. Like studying, like studying the past or coming to understand the past has a real like value for your present, which is interesting because obviously there's, um, there will eventually be like this, this question about time in this book and how oh, yeah. time functions. Um, I never really thought about how, I mean, obviously, yeah, I'd never really, I guess I've never really articulated just how important all of the dead characters are to the living or like, and the relationships between the dead. Um, but of course, that's just the same as it is here. Um, it, it, you know, it sometimes goes um, unverbalized or underverbalized, but you know, if who we are is a combination of who we've encountered and who has loved us, then it'd be pretty hard to not think about all of the people who once loved one another when you weren't around and um, all of the dynamics that it went into making them who they were. Um, that seems pretty significant. Yeah. And just on the note of time rippling from the past into the present and the same way of simply broadening out, it, it, it indicates the, uh, the importance of the meaningful moments one has as a child as being that which defines one's character because Snape is now, if you were just to look at him entering the Defense Against the Dark Arts class and turning straight to the end of the book and then assigning a very difficult, long essay, you would think, what gives with Snape? Why is he acting like this? Like, usually he's bad, but he's reasonable in potions to some degree, you know, some mean comments. Um, but um, when you understand that he hates Lupin because of how James and his cronies used to treat him and now Lupin needs his help. He must see that as a, and with Sirius disgraced and now James dead, he must, how complicated that relationship is and how nastily he must feel for him and how justly he must feel the desserts are that Lupin has gotten and all of them have gotten, two of them now in his head dead, one of them utterly disgraced and on the run and um, one of them a werewolf and he's the best of all of them. Right. Uh, and he's you know despicable as far as magic folk are concerned and now who has the upper hand the potion master 
Snape. And so he really lords that overloop. And he's like, man, he hasn't gotten here yet. And it's like, it's so heavy handed. Him, I mean, just as some anacolicon, it just seems so heavy handed of him to turn straight to that last chapter too. Unless he's like feeling some serious hate or something like that. Because why would he be trying to outloop him in that way? Um, uh, with, I, I suppose it makes some sense in the past, but even still, not very subtle. And I think it's, I think it's interesting how he like snaps at Hermione, who actually can do the very thing that, um, and kind of already has um, recognized the very thing that he wants them to all know. Like I, I definitely kind of wonder. Yeah, does he really want to out Lupin? And like, what would that get him? I guess. Um, I thought that was extremely vindictive, the way that he organized that class. Yeah, um, not just not just to his own colleague. It was a vindictive against the students, um, which I thought was like really yucky. Like he normally he just from Hermione, right? Yeah, for knowing the right answer, right? For being an unsufferable know-it-all. Like, normally he's biased and strict. Yes. Like, every teacher, every teacher has favorites. If they, if they say that they don't, they're lying. Um, and he's normally, he normally plays favorites and is strict. But he's not, and, and they keep, he's passive aggressive, but there's always a line. And in that scene, Maybe I just was reading for it because you asked us a question via text, Alex, about like, when have we been unfair the way he has or he is? Like, when have we really harped on a student or felt like we were one of those kids? Um, and so maybe I was just reading especially for it. But like that, I thought his behavior as a sub like really crossed the line. Also, because he was disparaging of his other colleagues. Um, in a way that I thought was like, that crossed the line to me. And I didn't know if it was because maybe he feels um, like, uh, like he has to keep Lupin healthy and he resents that somebody is as good as he is and yet a werewolf. Maybe there's like, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what that was about, but it was, it seemed out of, character even for him. What did you guys think? Yeah, Wes, what did you think? And also, I would add in there, Draco's been pretty nasty, too. In this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's really stepping up the taunting quite a bit. He's, uh, so, yeah. What did you think of that scene as a teacher, as a person, as a oh. reader, as you? Yeah, yeah. Also, the, uh, the worst thing about Malfoy here is that he keeps faking that his arm hurts to the point where they switch the Quidditch matchup, right? And that's just yeah. like so that ill sportsmanship like to the extreme. And so they've been training and training to like play against this one style of play and now they're going to be switched it up to play against this totally different team, right? And it's like the worst day ever. It's the rainiest. It's the... Anyway, so there's that. Uh, and then as far as Snape, he uh, the suggestion seems to be that maybe and maybe this is a red herring or whatever, but like that he's still mad about the Boggart 
and how um, Lupin taught Neville how to make it ridiculous, right? Because it came in the form of Snape, and then Neville ridiculized it and and killed it with laughter. Uh, and and even oh gosh, yeah. So I think later on Dumbledore uh, alludes to that as well with his um, with their feast at Christmas. Uh, Does that mean Wes that that what Lupin brings back is like the sound? the memories of the humiliation of Snape. That's what he hates so much about him, that that, that scene is an embodiment, now that we have context, of Snape's entire time at Hogwarts because of James and Sirius particularly. The laughter I mean, I guess, of him being humiliated by them, and now they're friends. Yeah. But, two, but two things about that, right? Like, one, how would Snape have found out about this? It wasn't like any of the kids are going to run to his office and be like, you wouldn't believe what happened in Professor. I mean, maybe it was. <laughs> but but isn't it described like, as ringing throughout the halls as if everybody knows it? Like, I, I think oh, language, I would have to say language, but I think it is described as like everybody was talking about it. And so, so in that case, in that case, it really sounds like he's reverting to like a like a oh, high wow, school, yeah. you know, as I think as I think we all do when there are cert there are certain triggers. Right. On the other hand, like if I was Snape, I would also think like, damn, like I am the single most frightening thing that that kid can think of. I have done my job. Right. <laughs> that, <laughs> That's right. I mean, it wasn't that isn't that kind of what he wanted to be to Neville all along? I, I mean, in that case, it does really seem like it is sort of like this gut reaction, instinctive reversion to something he was when he was in middle school but yeah i think it's interesting too that like they won't cancel the quidditch match because of rain but but slytherin can say oh i can't play like they, they couldn't possibly find a backup it's know? absurd and yeah. and also like that to me is just like a little socioeconomic commentary about the ways in which the rich and the privileged have um like the uber wealthy and the uber privileged just play by a different set of rules like mm. and sometimes the rules aren't even prescribed they just choose not to abide by the rules that everybody else abides by and in so doing construct a new set um Anyway, but that that I'm curious what you were what you were all thinking about about Snape's rage. It's yeah. Also, his um, the other thing about him, right, is that he's he sends Ron to um to clean the bedpans in the hospital wing, right? And so, if Lupin is sick, then that's where Lupin mm -hmm. would be. Right. And so it's almost like, yeah, he seems to be trying to get people to figure out that something else is going on uh, without coming out and telling them like Lupin is a wolf. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> uh, but still, he's doing he's doing everything within his power to to uh, put him on blast. When you know, when, he, <laughs> when he's saying that he's a wolf, is that is he trying to disparage his character because they're looked down upon, or is he trying to alert them to a real threat, like a real defense against the dark arts teacher? Um, would be my real question because he has known the firsthand effects of the savageness of young men, right? 
James and Cirrus did a real number on him. And Lupin was one of them. He was their friend. And so is he trying to get them to see that he's not just this good man, but that they should maybe look at the state of his life for some evidence of the sort of person he could be? Um, I think that's got to be part of the motivation. And it's, it's a really interesting, like, image to think about the, the werewolf, right? Because it's another one of these beings, which is like a mixture of two other beings. Uh, the hippogriff is, is like that, of course, right? It, it's got the, and the, the griffin itself on the Gryffindor crest or whatever. So, so the, um, the idea that like any symbol has just one meaning it seems like is is part of Snape's sickness, right? If he does see the wolf that way as like the savagery of young people or something, like mm. that's because he's not seeing the other valence of the symbol or like the many possible ways to see that symbol or something like that. Well, how do so, you perceive the werewolf? Like my my first idea of it would be like, the uncontrolled anger that can overwhelm a person, and this is somebody that has not has not achieved, or I don't know, is afflicted in such a way that they cannot control their anger, and so they'll just turn on people. Uh, whereas, you know, the animagases or the animagi are people who sort of integrate that aggression and thus harness it to their own will, like animals mm -hmm. from those books yeah. when we were younger. Um, that seems to be the same idea. Um, but I mean, what is your take on what a werewolf is or y'all's take on what a werewolf is? I see. I think the other part about it is that it's not, it's precisely not chosen, right? It's like, this is a, this is a kind of curse that he right. bears and he's, um, and he's, transformed by certain forces outside of himself uh, at certain times. And so there's like, there's the tiny element to it and there's the, um, the unwilled, um, the necessity of it, uh, the obligation almost. Right? So those, those kinds of things. And that would be precisely like the most unfair thing, right? Like right. For, Snape to, for Snape to only see the, the unfairness of his own treatment and then to miss how like painful that suffering would be for Lupin and how kind his friends were to to accompany him in that you know it's like again you sort of you sort of um you're seeing part of it but I, but not the other side of it that's a yeah that's a really good point that Snape has been sort of twisted by his treatment by them to only see them in one way and that mm -hmm. the sickness is occupy one perspective and to have the sort of aloofness or pr pride to only proceed from that perspective, because that does seem to be Snape's problem, right? He doesn't seem to connect well with others. And that, like we've been talking about, seems to be rooted in the past, in the fact that these meaningful moments when he was young defined his character in such a way as to make him oily and, you know, he's still that little boy, to not to be Freudian about it, but to just, you know, mention that he is still sort of odd and off-putting and still a gifted student and but now a teacher and um you know uh is very much a slytherin and that he's not fair and he, yeah i was just gonna say like 
Wes, you made the point that there's something about the werewolf condition that's like not chosen, but sort of a curse. Um, and I wonder if like Snape's, I don't know, we said, you just said, Alex, he's a really smart man, right? He's not so stupid as to not know what's going on within himself, I would imagine, but maybe, I mean, we've all had moments where, where I mean, maybe I'm just speaking from the eye, but I think I speak for most people when I would say that we've all had moments where we've snapped at people, where someone pushes our buttons, they expose our greatest weaknesses, and they, um, uh, and our greatest fears and these deep emotionally set triggers and you're exposed. And so you, you react with like kind of beastly. And what if that is also what he is doing? Right. And, and like part of his anger is his knowledge that he should be better than this. Like the pain that he's endured should yield compassion for the pain of others but it somehow hasn't turned that way for him. I've got it. Yeah, you, you hit it. He is just like Lupin because he has not integrated. I think he really pressure. is. That's right. I, really hit, I think he really is. It's right. just not physical. It's transformation. Yeah. Let's start the second email. I'm going to send you the email now. Okay. All right, Sarah, okay. you were saying uh, you thought that you agreed that Professor Lupin and Snape were the same, but just not physically the same. We're similar in like this in the in our discussion of what a werewolf is somebody who's both like man and beast um, but not by choice is I guess more classically somebody who who can't control a beast within or the bestial parts of themselves well, that seems like definitely Snape yeah and that's interesting because it, it leaves Snape as sort of an a deformed hero or an un or an unformed hero right because james mm -hmm. though a bully masters his aggression and becomes the ability you know he becomes prongs i love those names prongs because of antlers because of a stag you know a regal animal because it has a crown a stephanos and uh and he gets the girl too right and he has the son and the son even ends up being more famous than the father so even in death, James is the super stud. You know, he's like the Jesus as far as Snape is concerned. He has everything. Mm -hmm. He, uh, yeah, you know, maybe even Dumbledore loves him more. You know what I mean? And that's why he favors Harry. But, um, and so, you know, it's just interesting to think of Snape in context of that. And that, and that even though Snape might feel cast off, and this is reminding me of some Whitman that we read earlier, and also some Final Fantasy VII, his time still may yet come to walk the path of the hero, even though he, he, he saw that embodied by another person in his life, which had to be a humiliating thing to witness, because it was not, you know, him in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like that's something we have to overcome as we grow up thinking that other people who are better than we are at different things are the hero rather than we all walk the path of the hero to produce a better world. Um, I would say that was an inhibiting fact growing up for me. It's like they're, people seem so great. It seems so hard to compete. And so, you know, it is interesting to see what Snape has become so overcome with rage because he's refused to 
overcome these facts. And that that's, those seem to be the two ways of it, that there's no neutral middle ground. Um, and I, I guess I really liked what, I liked how you framed like the idea that he's not able to see the alternative valence, I think was the word. Um, but I, I remember if I could just, just sort of less about, you know, serious questioning and more about personal experience, but I guess I remember reading the books the first time and I remember hating Snape. And I just, I think it's a wonderful trick or, or move in the narrative to force the reader to be in the same judgmental position of like mm -hmm. completely, like we all see the world and like obviously through our, our own eyes and those, that those lenses can have shades on them or blinders and we can consistently fail to see like the whole of reality if we've already made a judgment as to who someone is and when you get to books book seven really um like the valence of who the character is just fundamentally shifts because you finally get like a view into somebody else's world i think the, the pensive is such a a rich way to make that happen but um it it really does seem like honoring the context of somebody else and preconceiving goodwill. I know that that's like a super Ignatian term, but um, I still believe that because St. Ignatius and Harry Potter have the same birthday um, mm -hmm. and you, Wes, that like, um, <laughs> that you guys all have a lot in common, but, but like um, Snape, it doesn't seem can presuppose goodwill um, like he, of anybody, right? Um, and yet, as a consequence, we don't either for him. Yeah, um, right. You know? We imitate. And so, and I just think that that's such a great arc that she, like, she plays on, or, or, like, a, basically, like, a trick she plays on us um, well, by think, the end to, to remind think, us that, like, oh, you, th you thought this guy was out? You thought he was, you thought he was irredeemable? He was, like, completely on the outside? Like, guess what? You were wrong. Everybody belongs on the end. I think that's the trick of narrative, too. And I recently read an article about this. Uh, a historian talking about a flaw of history is that oh. narratives, and so it often leaves out certain information that if it were to speak mm -hmm. from a different perspective, it would include. And so part of how we perceive Harry Potter is through the perception of, like, a 13-year-old boy. And so he perceives right. the world in a like the Marauder's Map in like a fairly superficial way. And I, actually the Marauder's Map might be something more sophisticated than that. I'm interested to see what, what y'all think it is. Is it a map of society as it is? Is it Harry's map of reality that's now filling up? But um, we see Snape in this typological way, like an antagonist. And, and we only seem to be seeing the bad things about him and none of the good until the end. I wonder to what extent that was because he was a, um, because we perceive, perceive him through Harry's eyes and Harry is perhaps even more judgmental than Snape or projects that judgmental unfairness onto him because he's prejudged Snape from the very beginning wrongfully. 
Yeah, well, I think the counterpart to that too is Dumbledore and his omni uh, omnipotence, omniscience, etc. Right? His because because we see Dumbledore here, uh, kind of get get um, get caught on the hop by the Dementors, right? Like they've been posted around the school, mm -hmm. he couldn't prevent it, and now the Dementors flow in to the Quidditch match and and take up the whole field and, and almost kill Harry, right? And and they tell us Dumbledore was really angry, right? Like no one has seen him that angry before. He snaps. He also has a limit. And that's like, that's pretty scary, right? To see that person that you totally trust and like think is capable of anything uh, really pushed to to um, like react, you know, to like show that, that raw anger and... Um, and still not be able to really, you know, prevent the thing that happened. And, and again, that's like one of the huge, of course, you know, spoiler alert coming up in, in the, towards the end of the series where you see Dumbledore falter, you know, and it's, it sucks. Yeah. And what's interesting about the raw emotion of that moment and imprecision of language is Ron's description, which is so lacking, some silver stuff came out of his wand. It's funny. <laughs> Ron is so indistinct and in how he perceives things. He might also perceive it like that because it's such an emotional moment that he can barely actually see. And so he doesn't get a good idea of what comes out, but also because we might not know what to look for yet. So with Lupin, it's some silvery stuff. And also with him, we don't yet know the distinct forms of the Patronus or the Patroni. But I would have been really interested in knowing the form of uh, Dumbledore's, but if he is a figure of God the Father, it would be sort of hard for him to have one too, because he'd be the embodiment sort of everybody's, right? So maybe it was just like a silver light. But uh, mm -hmm. it, that might be revealed what what it is in some of the Pottermore trivia, but do either of you know mm -hmm. about that? Not a bit. I but don't. Yeah. I would have guessed like a phoenix, but I could be wrong. Right, that would mm. that would be good. Yeah, I mean, Fox does seem to be a stereomorphic form, which also seems to be what a Patronus yeah. is. So that's uh, yeah, that's good. The the thing that has to be renewed, Father Society, right, by the living hero, um, which I think is even going to happen in Fantastic Beasts. I see, I think I've said this before, but Dumbledore will say he can't fight Grindelwald. It's got to be you know the actual living person. Um, yeah, I'm forgetting the name. Uh, what is the guy's name? Newt. Newt. I thought Commander. it was Commander. Commander. Yeah, Newt's Commander, right. Newt the sound. What a beast. Yeah, I'm looking oh. forward to that. Um, well, hey, y'all, um, I might have to shove off here, but um, do we want to say something about potentially going to this Norwest Con and representing Pottermore to the, the fans? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, well, so I, I guess we're still waiting to hear back in what exact capacity we're going to be presenting but it sounds like we will at least have some kind of panel there where we get to record um record a show uh maybe get some audience participation and um you know have some fun with that uh being live in you know the same room for a change would be pretty neat and that's in seattle around easter i think i forget the exact date but yeah yeah hey can is it the april 19 2021 yeah, 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 that sounds right. Okay, it's def definitely Easter. Yeah. So, um, just heads up. Um, yeah, so did we hear that, like, we got a panel or that we're w invited to, like, 
sign up as, as retreatants of sorts? Yeah, the the way that it was, like, um, the reply was basically, like, we are still figuring out the schedule, and maybe we can mm -hmm. find places for you guys to be on various panels, but it sounds like at least we would be able to do the one presentation, uh, which was just like recording whatever point we're at in the books at that point uh, as a show. Cool. We could also do like a bit of a backstory about like, mm -hmm. it could be like an extra episode kind of like, Here's why we did this. Here's what we feel like we've gotten out of it as we go through this. You know, like it could be a little meta. Oh yeah, definitely. For meta, meta we, we, yeah. we could we could also present on what our project at large is and how we want to educate. Mm -hmm. people. And we're just yeah. going to do that, and people can listen if they want to, and that's great because we live in the yeah. greatest age ever. <laughs> we live in <laughs> we live in Hogwarts. Or hogs meat at this point, I suppose. Uh, but we're professors, yeah. so there you go. Um, uh, okay, well, um, so since I was reading a bit slowly this time, I'm uh, kind of sheepish. I'm very wrong-like in this moment. Um, could we go two, third? Nah, let's go to fourteen. I want to see some more Quidditch. I want to see if Harry can redeem. <laughs> So eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Yeah, I think that'll be fine. Cool. All yeah, right. That's good. I think that's good. Mapping this. I think we still have to talk about. We still want to talk about the map. Yeah. Next time. The one thing I would say that I I think the map might be is itself a microcosm of what the book is. It's like this, because just as the map houses all the names and all the actions that everybody's taking within it, Albus Dumbledore paced this way. Harry was saying Descendio or whatever. Um, so yeah. does this book contain all of that as well? And so it's like a guidebook for how things happen, and that's why fiction works and why we like it, or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, I just want to throw that out there to uh, to germinate potentially because that was my one good thought about the map so far. Um, and uh, I thought it was oh. interesting that Harry appeared on it later, actually, just as a note when Harry activates it, that's when he appears on it. So it's like you and the hero in the book share the same path as you're reading, which I think is the coolest idea ever. Mm -hmm. And maybe why video games work. Mm. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I have to get going as well. So All right. we'll talk about that next time. And um, until then, Mischief Manage. Mischief managed. <laughs> Mischief managed. Later.